That girl just talks about the same thing every single week. I started asking more questions. Well, what do they talk about? Well, they were sinners and we need to get saved. That's just all they say every week. You're a sinner, you need to get saved. Well, there's a lot of worse things that could be said every week. But I was happy that he then said, I wish they just taught me more of the Bible, like the whole story. How that fits into our lives. Like that's an astute young man. I kind of wish there were more churches doing that too. And, and that's my hope as a pastor and this morning in particular. I would hopefully help us understand the story of scripture from beginning to end through this one story. So the bold claim I have for you is I hopefully won't say just the same thing, that you're a sinner, you need to be saved, although that's true. The story we're going to read this morning I think will help you make sense of the whole world. I think it's going to help you make sense of the church, and I think it's going to help make sense of your mission and the purpose that you have in the world. That's actually the outline for this morning's message. This story in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 is going to help you make sense of the whole world, the church, and then your mission and purpose in the world as a member of the church. I'm going to read the story actually starting in chapter 11, but we'll be referencing 10 as well. So let's turn our attention to chapter 11 starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This story will help make sense of your world, but first it makes sense of their world. The original hearers of this story would have been Israelites. They would have been about to cross over into the land of Canaan. And what we find in Genesis chapters 10 and 11 is a story that I just read to you that's sandwiched between what? Can you see in your Bible? What's chapter 10? A long list of names. Genealogy. Then, what's right after this story, starting in verse 10 of chapter 11? 
another long list of names. So sandwiched between this story, or sandwiched around this story, are two genealogies. What's interesting is that both of these genealogies have sets of ten. The chapter ten set is ten generations, then the story, and then ten generations. Another interesting thing that you need to realize is that chapter 10 is actually telling you how all the nations are spread out with different languages. And then it's as if the author and the storyteller says, oh, hold on, I forgot to tell you how we got here. So then the story I just read is a little bit of a flashback. Here's how all these nations got spread out all over the world with these different languages. But one thing that I would have not done, but many scholars in Hebrew commentators have pointed out is that there are 70 names in chapter 10. 70 different people in these lists. If you know anything about Hebrew literature and you know anything about the number seven and you understand, oh, that's actually significant. That's not a coincidence that there's 70. And the point is that this is the list of nations, and although it's not an exhaustive list of every nation that exists, It's supposed to say, this is representative. This list is the table of all the nations universally of the whole world. Seventy meaning completion. Seventy meaning the the total number of perfection. So here in chapter 10, you have a whole list, representative symbolically of all the nations over the whole earth and how all the different nations are spread out in different geographical areas and they have different languages. How do they get there? That's how that story helps them make sense of their world. Where did all these nations come from? Where did these languages come from? I think another thing that they're learning is what Psalm 2 says. Why do these nations rage? Why do they plot against the Lord's anointed? Why is it that we are facing such opposition against, let's say, the Canaanites or the Babylonians or the Assyrians? This story in chapter 11 helps answer that question and makes sense of their world. But we're not Israelites crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. I have good news for you. This story helps us make sense of our world. When you understand the center of this story, I think you'll understand how it describes really what our world is like too. Look at the center of the story. I don't know if you noticed, but verse 1, as I've pointed out in a lot of other sermons, Verse 1 starts one way, and then verse 9 ends the exact opposite way. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Verse 9, it says, Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. There's a chiastic structure where you follow the end of the story and it comes in. So the language repeats itself. Look at the way in verse 3 and 4 it says, come let us, come let us. Well, what does God say in verse 7? Come let us. And so it's the exact opposite all the way down. And so what's the center of the story? It's verse 4. They said, I'm sorry, verse 5. They said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of all the earth. And then here's the center of the story. Verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. 
I think the way to read this story is that there was a time where all the peoples had one language and they were all in one place. And God's saying that you are rebellious little children with this story. You are rebellious little children. I have children, and I'm learning that they too are rebellious. And recently, this is not a story of their rebellion, but just a story of getting an image of what our children are like, what childish behavior is often like, and that these people are much like that. This last Friday, I was playing with my son John, and he's playing with one of his favorite toys. And I was thinking, I'll just try and describe it, and I don't know if I can, so I just brought it with us. So here it is. This is John's favorite toy. Do you know what these are? These are like nesting blocks, like nesting dolls. They fold up inside of one another, but they also stack on top of each other. And so John loves this toy. It's, I think, his favorite of all toys. And he builds himself a tower. And you know what he does as soon as he's done building the tower? He looks over at me and he goes, he's so proud of himself, you know? Maybe he's just mimicking me because I kept doing that every time he did it. But most kids, when they see the tower, you know what they want to do? Anybody? You have kids? Knock that thing down, right? That's what every normal boy would do. Well, not my son. In fact, when one of his siblings accidentally knocked it over, he threw a tantrum. Like, he was really upset. Like, no, this is my tower. And he's extremely careful with each one. Like, when he puts this on, for a one-year-old, just very carefully putting it on and then, then the clapping. Now, here's what I want you to get in your mind. If the center of the story says in 11 verse 5 that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, what just happened in verse 4? They said, we want to build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. They want to build something that's so high it reaches up to God, that this would be a staircase all the way up to heaven. There's all kinds of different commentators that think that this this tower would have been this temple-type structure that they could make access for God to then come down and worship them. So they're thinking, we can do that. We can reach God by our own technology and our own efforts, by building bricks. This region where they're at is in Shinar in verse 2, you see there, where they settled, it would not have been a region where they would have had access to all the stones that Palestinians would have had. If you wanted to build a big tower, you would just put a bunch of stones on top of each other, but not where they were living. They didn't have that access, so they were smart. They were ingenious. They built bricks, and they used those bricks to show off their might and their strength and their technology, and they did that all in an idolatrous, proud sort of sense where they thought of themselves that they could reach God. So now picture John on Friday as I'm playing with him, and picture him as a little child and being like, Daddy. And he doesn't talk yet, so he doesn't say this. But imagine, John say, Daddy, I just built a tower to heaven. It's like, no, John, that's it's not even tall enough. It's not even taller than me. You can build a tower to heaven. And this is exactly what God's saying in verse 5. The Lord had to come down to see their tower. They thought they were going to build a tall tower and reach heaven. And the Lord, I think this is ironic sort of humor here, right in the center of this story. Oh yeah, I'm in heaven. I don't see no tower. If I want to see your tower, guess what I need to do? I need to get out of heaven and I need to come down to see your tower. Because you are little children. 
children of men, he says in verse 5, to see this city and this great tower of yours. That's why as I was playing with John, I saw this picture of rebellious little children. And that's why I think this helps us make sense of our world. All the nations of the world are pathetic, reaching up to the heavens, trying to proudly make a great name for themselves. And all of them are basically rebellious children, except one nation. That's what this whole story is about. All the nations of the world have their start from a rebellious children who make much of their name in opposition to God's commands and his name. This is the way of Babel and the way of really all the kingdoms and nations of the rest of the world. Let me show you a few more places where we see this point. In chapter 10, verse 8, if you just glance over, you'll see that the man who is the founder of this city, this tower, is a man named Nimrod. Anybody might want to mark that down for baby names later on. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. So notice here, this is a mighty man. It says in verse 9, he is a mighty hunter before the Lord. And it says, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was, was Babel. So the starter, the, the founder, was a mighty man, strong, set apart from everyone else. So get this image in your mind that the kingdoms of this world are full of people that want to show off their power, their, their might, their strength, and make themselves great compared to all the weak around them. Another example of this rebellious children mindset is in chapter 11, verse 2. It says that they were migrated from the east. If you've been with us, you already know right away where this is going. Adam and Eve were kicked which direction out of the garden? East. Cain killed his brother Abel, and then he was kicked further away from the Lord's presence in which direction? East. These people are a bunch of people that migrated from the east. They're rebellious people far from God's presence. Every detail of this story is showing you the nations of the world are rebellious children. They're proud. They think that they're doing something great and mighty, and God laughs at them almost. <laughs> I'll come see your tower. The last thing I want to point out is that they did not want to be dispersed. Now, sometimes I think we wrongly think everything about this story is about the tower. But notice they wanted to also build a city. And they also says what? says they did not want to be dispersed. So let us make a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let's make a name for ourselves. This is verse 4 unless we might be dispersed over the face of the earth. They don't want to be dispersed. They want to stay in, not go out. If you know the story of Genesis so far, why is that a problem? God's very original intention in chapter 1. So turn with me to chapter 1 so you see exactly where this is coming from. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God explains why he made man. It says how he did it, to make him in his image, in verse 27, and then verse 28, and God blessed them. 
And God said to them, the, the humans, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Turn with me now to chapter 9, verse 1. Last week we looked at the flood story and we saw that God was starting over with Noah. And look what he says at the beginning of this chapter, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons. Does that sound familiar? Adam and Eve. He made them and then he what? He blessed them. And then he gave them a command and he told them to do what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So twice we have in the story of Genesis that God's intention is that people would be made in God's image, that as they are made in God's image, that they would use that image-bearing responsibility as prince and princesses, not as slaves and servants, but rather as vice rulers of the earth. They're to use that privilege and responsibility to fill the earth with the glory of God's goodness all over the face of the earth. Rebellious little children want to keep all of their power and their technology and all their stuff inward. We don't want to be dispersed out. That's why I'm telling you that this chapter and this story in chapter 11 is telling us these are rebellious children of men who are proud, who are man worshipers and worship themselves over the name of God. They are people that do not want to fulfill the mission and purpose of God but have their own mission and their own agenda Wait, doesn't this really sound like our world? That's why I'm saying this is not an old story to just tell people, hey, here's how the languages came and here's how the nations were spread out. It does that, but it does more than that. And the rest of the Bible, I think, uses Babel as kind of like a, a representative of the rest of the nations. In the same way, when we say, Movies were made from Hollywood. Well, every movie wasn't made from Hollywood, but we use that title, Hollywood, as a representative of all that the film industry does. That's what Babel should be like. That's what Babylon is. And they are seen throughout the rest of the Old Testament as the arch enemies that are always trying to take over and kill Israelites. So, this is a bigger story than just how languages came to be. It is a story describing how the human heart is inward focused and not concerned about the needs and the glory of God around the world. There's a story about people who want to make their names great and their own legacy more important than anything else. That is really bad news. God does not say in verse 6 that he is threatened by them. Oh no, what are we going to do? They could, anything they could do, anything they put their mind to, they could do because of the great power that they have. It's, it's not because they're so great. It's that he knows that if they continue in this trajectory, this is going to be bad news for the rest of the world. So he brings judgment on them by dispersing them over the nations. And as he does that, he is doing an act of kindness, as we will find out, because he has a plan for a separate nation. And that nation will be very different. And we'll get to that in a moment, but I want us to first pause and ask just the question, in what ways are you more like the Tower of Babel, or will you be more like the people of God? Which citizen of which kingdom do you want to be a part of and identified with? That's really the question that we should be asking ourselves at this part of the story. Are there times where you want to use your power, your strength, your efforts to try and make your name great? 
How often do we use our academics to try and show off our smarts? You're smarter than someone else. Not to bless them, but to bless yourself. We can even do that here in the church. The Apostle Paul warns against biblical knowledge that can puff up and make someone proud. I wonder if you've ever been in a church or around somebody who says they're a Christian. And maybe they are. They're also full of a lot of pride because of all that they know of the Bible. You should not use your smarts or academics for the sake of puffing yourself and your name up. It should be for the sake of serving others. How often are we as people and all the nations of the world obsessed with external beauty for the sake of the, the pretty and the healthy and the people that look a certain way? Those are the ones that get all the, the best opportunities in the world. If you want to succeed in the world's system, well, then you need to do all the right things to look a certain way. And so we use external beauty, we use academics, we use our job successes and promotions to make much money and our material possessions, and et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. I think a real danger for church people, too, is to make a great tower of their church. Is that not true? How easy is it for us to, in the name of of making God's name great, we're really just trying to make a certain pastor or a certain church great and build the next monster tower church. And this is the way we judge success, even in the Christian circles. What we need to realize this morning is that we need to admit that this story is all too familiar for all of us. That we are rebellious children who have rebelled against God's mission and God's purposes we have misplaced his worship of the one true God to worshiping ourselves. It's our favorite idol. Babylon is that way. And it represents all of those things I just talked about. We should be asking, which citizen do we want to be? Which kingdom do we want to be a citizen of? Which brings us to our second point. God planned a different kingdom, a different people to be contrasted with this story in chapter 11. Those people eventually be called the church, so we're just going to fast forward. First, they'll become Abraham descendants, and then they'll become Israelites, and so on and so forth. But eventually, this story ends with the church. So let's see first how it starts with Abraham. Right after the story of Babel, what do you get? Shem's descendants. These are the generations and descendants of Shem. And then you go on and on and it keeps reading. And then eventually you get to a man in verse 24 named Terah. And verse 26 says that Terah lived 70 years and then he fathered a man named Abram. And we follow Abram. It says Abram got married to a woman named Sarah. Sarai. And then we start getting introduced to a man named Abram. So if you're following the flow here, and you don't just read, okay, there's a little story about how God brought the nations spread out all over the earth, and that's why there's different nationalities and ethnicities and languages. Okay, got it. Now here's a story about Abram. No, these are connected. They're supposed to be compared and contrasted with one another, and notice that's exactly what the author does. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, 
and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you guys see it? They want to make a great name for themselves. God's plan is to choose a man who had no intentions one way or another. And he says, I'm going to make your name great. He says he's going to bless him. All of chapters 1 through 11 are coming to this climactic point in chapter 12, verse 1. One of the evidences of that is that five times you heard me say the word bless. I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Five times the word blessing is used. Probably because five times God cursed or you saw the curse of sin in Genesis 1 through 10. Five curses, bless, bless, bless five times. So why we see this story coming to a climax in Abram. He's going to bless them so that he will be a blessing to all the nations. So in chapter 10, we're introduced to all these nations over the whole earth. Well, I'm going to bless a man and I'm going to choose him, and he's going to be a blessing to all of the nations. Babel wanted their safety and security to stay in. God called Abram out. You could really read these words literally. Get out of your country. The people of Babel wanted to be a blessing for themselves, but God wanted Abram to be a blessing so he would bless others. I will bless you so you will bless others. Side little note real quick. If you're wondering how to pray and why it is that sometimes you feel like God doesn't hear your prayers, it might be because you're not really asking for his will. This is the way the scripture teaches us to pray. Later on in the New Testament, it's going to make it really clear. It says, if you ask according to my will, I will give you whatever you ask. Like, that sounds good. According to my will. What's the will of the Father? It's right here. That he will answer your prayers and he will give you blessings so that you will be a blessing to others. Not so that we just get blessed. So have you ever prayed for a job? God, give me a job. That prayer, if you want to pray according to God's will, is God, give me a job not just so I can get a job and make money for me. So I can be a blessing to those I work with. So I can be a blessing to the boss I might work for. So I can be a blessing with the money that I get from that job. So I can be a blessing on and on and on you go. So I can bless others. That's a great way for you to learn how to pray, is that you won't just ask for stuff, whatever that stuff might be. It could be the salvation of your children. It could be good things. It could be the the glory of God's name through our church. Don't just pray so that our church gets named great, so that we can then be a blessing to the nations. This, I think, is a helpful reminder for us that God's will, God's ways, if we want to work in sync with his ways, is to ask for things and his blessings so that we can be a blessing to others. That's the contrast. They wanted to make their name great, but God was going to make Abram's name great all on his own, through his family. Through his family, I will make your name great. And you're supposed to have already read chapter 11. And if you did, you know that Sarah is barren. See that? Chapter 11, verse 31. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law. 
his son Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans. They went to the land of Canaan. When they went to Haran, they stayed there. Sarah was barren in verse 30. She had no child. That's how that story of chapter 11 ends before we get introduced to Abram. Abram can't make his name or his family great because he has no family and he can't have any family. And that's why we should be amazed at all that the way for someone's name to be great for the glory of God is where God gets all the credit. Abram can't take any credit. Sarah can't take any credit. Her womb was barren. There was nothing they could do. So we see the contrast between chapter 11 and 12, I think quite clearly. A group of people that tried to worship God by reaching their way up to heaven. Or in chapter 12, a man being blessed by God as God reaches down. In spite of Abram, all of his sins, failures, and weaknesses. God choosing him. There's two kinds of people in the world. There's two ways to live. There's two kingdoms that you can be a citizen of. You can be a citizen of Babylon, or you can be a citizen of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And eventually, we all as Christians are called children of Abraham because we are supposed to follow in that line of Abraham. Nimrod was the founder of Babel in chapter 10, but Jesus is the founder of the Christian church. Through the line of Abraham, he starts the new Jerusalem. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that you will be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden? Should be the contrast here. There's a city, a city of Babylon, the nations of all the world, but there will be a different kind of city, a city on a hill whose light will shine and cannot be darkened or stamped out. That city is the church. That nation is us. We are that people. Just like in the Babel story, the only way to bridge the gap was for God to come down in verse 5. The only way to bridge the gap was for God to come down. There's no way to go up yourself. You can't build a tower. You can't reach heaven through your moral efforts. The only way is if God comes down and I have good news. He did. Jesus Christ came down from heaven just like Abraham was called to get out of what was familiar and comfortable. So Jesus Christ was called to leave all that was comfortable and familiar. Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, wrote, He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Instead of being blessed, Jesus became the curse. He emptied himself of all but love and loved even his enemies to his death. He turned the other cheek. He died on a cross for sins. This is the start of the church. It's a very different sort of way to make someone's name great, isn't it? Compare Nimrod to Jesus. Mighty warrior, suffering servant, riding in on a donkey, wanting to bring peace, not war, to die and suffer. The contrast couldn't be more clear, I don't think. Jesus rose again from the dead, conquering death. Do you know what happened after he rose from the dead? 
He told his disciples that it would be good for him to leave, which is, I think, one of the strangest things in all the Bible. Jesus, no. We've been waiting for you to come. Don't leave. Isn't the cry of almost every Christian's heart in this room, come, Jesus, come. But Jesus says, no, it's better if I leave because my plan is for my name to be known among all the nations of the earth, and it's going to come through the spread of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send a helper. And that helper will accomplish a purpose through different people as they have my image stamped in on their heart, as my spirit comes in them. So why do you think we read Acts chapter 2 earlier in the service? Do you realize what's happening as the church is forming? Acts chapter 2 was the story I read of fires of tongue coming Divided tongues coming down and resting on people's heads. And, and there's this strange story where these people, all of them are understanding each other's language, even though they're from all over the earth. wonder what that's about. It's the reverse of the Tower of Babel story. It's the new kingdom that's being started. It's the new ushering in of a whole new kind of humanity. In the Tower of Babel story, the judgment came down on earth. As God split them out and they could not understand each other, they were confused. Now, in the story of the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they're confused at why everybody can understand one another. They're confused at why the gospel is being preached in a way that everybody can know. And so, by the way, if any of you have questions about what speaking in tongues must be about, it has more to do with this sort of story than it does any of the other things that you might hear. It has to do with making his name great among the nations. Speaking in tongues and acts is an outward thing to serve other people first and foremost. That's what happens in Acts 2 and the rest of the story of Acts. They speak other languages so that those people who didn't even know those languages now know them and now they understand the gospel. Spiritual gifts of power in Acts are almost often associated with evangelism or preaching and outward service to the nations. Not primarily inward things for us to get some special time with God. That's a whole other conversation, but that is a good foundation starting point. So let's go back to these blocks. Imagine this as the representation of every different color being a different nation that he then spreads out over all the earth. The gospel story of Jesus coming down from heaven to earth is to take all of the nations in Jesus Christ and add them together in something called the church. This is what it should look like when we gather together. This is what we should long for at least, and this is what should be happening all over the world. This brings us to our third and final point. This image, I think, is a good image of us seeing that all the nations that were spread out should come in through this preaching of the gospel. Our purpose here on this earth is to make much of the name of Jesus. Right after this story of tongues falling down and people understanding different languages, there's this wonderful line in Acts chapter 4, and it says, there is only one name under heaven which man can be saved. It's the name of Jesus. So the people that gather on Sundays, the people that are Christians, the people that want to be citizens of God's kingdom and not the kingdoms of this world, are people who are all about the name of Jesus, far and above every other name, including their own. They exist humbly to serve the name of Christ. 
We're also called to get out like Abraham was called to get out and leave all that's familiar. We are to be outward-oriented people, not inward and insulated. Churches so tragically do this week in and week out and become cliquish. They become insular. They care about their needs more than they care about the needs of others. They spend their money on inward rather than outward more, so on and so forth. Yes, we need to take care of us, but if we are not spending our time, our energies, our prayers, our passions for those outside, then we are missing our calling. We as individuals need to collectively come together and be people who care about every sort of ethnicity, language, and nation around the world. Citizens of heaven are citizens of every kind of people all over the earth. And how much glory does it give Jesus Christ when people who have nothing in common, they have different ages, they have different ethnicities, they have different backgrounds, different stories, but they have one thing in common, it's Jesus. That's what the church should be. We should be this multicolored gathering of people from all over the earth. And our mission is to do that, is to not just reach out to the people that are just like us, Not just reach out to the people that look like us or talk like us, have the same skin color as us. Tomorrow we have the great privilege of remembering a Christian man who gave his life for the sake of racial harmony here in America, Martin Luther King Jr. This Christian man believed that every man was made in God's image. Because of being that image bearer that Jesus came down, he was a gospel-believing man. He believed that the gospel Even though that the image of God was tarnished through sin, that the gospel renews that image. And so therefore, every person should be seen with equal dignity and rights. So when you think about Martin Luther King Jr., as you hear about him tomorrow, as people remember him, know that the church should be first and foremost the kind of people that stand up against racial injustice. We should be a place where we love people from different skin colors and ethnicities and backgrounds. Racism has no place in the church. Unity amongst all of the different diversities we could have, rich and poor, strong and weak, male and female. The church is a place that is an entirely different citizenship, entirely different kingdom, with different battles. Notice the way Ephesians chapter 6 says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not like the kingdoms of this world. We don't come with swords. We don't force people to be Christians. We can't. We don't try and kill people. We turn the other cheek. We do not repay evil for evil, but we bless those who curse us. We love our enemies. We're a flipped upside down kind of kingdom. And that's our mission in the world. If we understand the story here in chapter 10 and 11 of Genesis and trace it out through the rest of the Bible, we eventually get to the final climactic story in Revelation In Revelation chapter 5, we're told that the church is a people from every tribe, tongue, and language. It says that around the throne were these elders. This is chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. And there's this throne, and there's these creatures, and there's these elders, and they're they're noticing that there is a lamb that was slain, and this is the representation of Jesus on the cross. And then Jesus takes the scroll from the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, all of the people before the throne, they fell down on their faces and they started singing a new song. And they said, worthy are you 
to open the scroll and its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And you ransomed them from every tribe, every language, and every nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's how the whole story fits together. If you read this story in chapter 10 and 11, just as, well, this is how languages came, you're missing really the whole Bible. The opportunity to see how God is asking you right now, which kingdom are you a part of? In which mission are you advancing for the cause of that kingdom? You're either for him or against him, Jesus says. There is no in-between. Do you see the beauty of being a part of Jesus' kingdom? My hope and prayer is that you are compelled by the fact that our founder, Jesus Christ, the man who made this new nation, this new humanity, gave his life, suffered in our place, and brought us all together with great unity, even amongst all of our diversity, because there's one way for God and man, heaven and earth, to be together. It's by God coming down. It's by him leaving his throne. It's by him taking on the suffering and curse for our place. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you this morning for the treasure that your word is to us. Thank you for the way that you have revealed to us in your word this wonderful plan of redemption from beginning to end. What greater glory do you get and receive when we see people, even in this room, speak different languages, have different ethnicities, older, younger, richer, poorer, but as we sing together, we sing all with one voice, all hail the power of Jesus' name. How great a salvation you have provided for us through Jesus Christ. He is our King. He is our Lord. We want to be citizens of your kingdom, and I pray that all of us in this room would be thinking and longing and desiring to understand how they can live in harmony with your kingdom. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.